Welcome to the Melbourne Recital Centre's In Conversation series, a new series that fosters creative conversations about music, the music industry, and beyond. Recorded live in the salon and made possible by the Centre's Amplify program and APRA AMCOS. In this live In Conversation event, we sit down with acclaimed Australian artists Lisa Gerard and Dave Graney. Lisa Gerard has established herself as one of Australia's most groundbreaking and in-demand artists, vocalist for English-based outfit Dead Can Dance, award-winning composer for internationally acclaimed films including Gladiator and Whale Rider, and founder of her own record label, Gerard Records. Lisa believes music is a place to take a refuge, and her musical vision is all-embracing. Dave Graney hails from the 80s post-punk scene, with fellow travellers Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds, The Apartments, and The Laughing Clowns. He has released over 30 albums, published two books, composed scores for film and TV, writes a monthly column for the Adelaide Review, and presents a weekly show on Melbourne's radio station, Triple R. Let's start the conversation. Good evening, everyone. Uh, My name is Chris uh, from APRA AMCOS. Thank you all very much for coming along tonight. Um, We're very thrilled to co-present tonight's event with uh, the Melbourne Recital Centre. Uh, it's going to be pretty special discussion, so uh, sit back and it's, you know, enjoy yourself. Firstly, I'd like to uh, acknowledge the people of the Kulin Nation on, uh, on whose land this concert is being presented. I'd also like to recognise that thanks to this terrific space, uh, music can continue to be performed and uh, appreciated on this land. Um, thank you uh, for our contributors for the Amplify program. Uh, so, thanks to the Amplify program, the following patrons are helping to financially support tonight's event, and that's uh, Joshua and Emmylou Evans, Snowy Lee, and James Ostrobersky. Uh, as you're aware, we're both very lucky, we're all very lucky to have Dave Graney and Lisa Gerard join us tonight. Um, I don't really think there's much to introduce, uh, as they're both icons in their own right. So. Uh, I won't hold up anything further and I'll leave you guys to it. Please welcome Lisa Drad and Dave Graney. Oh, thank you. Hello. Thank you. <clears throat> and uh, we're just going to take half an hour or so to uh, get used to the tempo of proceedings. How, how do you think about that, <laughs> Lisa? In silence. Mm, yes. All right. To slow things down a bit. <laughs> to, uh, because we have quite a while to fill up. <laughs> but anyway, um, how's, how's it going, Lisa? Very well, mm. thanks, Dave. It's wonderful. Thank you for coming. You're amazing. It's great that you're here. It's always lovely to meet and be amongst people that are like-minded, I suppose. Thank you. Lisa and I have different uh, strategies for dealing with people. Uh, we've worked out over the years. Uh, mine, I've been influenced a lot by the world of criminals and uh, <laughs> in the manner of dress and the manner of delivering amusing uh, uh, anecdotes or asides to soften you up for the action that's going to start in a while. Lisa has different uh, attitude, which you'll know already. But anyway, <clears throat> I think uh, we'll begin, I thought we, I'd begin with a bit of, bit of a complaint, Lisa. Uh, 
as musicians, we were just given no introduction. I would like an introduction, Hello. personally. Ladies and gentlemen, Dave Green. <laughs> oh, <thank you. laughs> well, I wasn't asking for that, but it's just the way of becoming a musician uh, in the modern age. You have to do so much yourself. Yes, miserable state of affairs. And uh, coming along to tonight's show, uh, talk, I mean, not show, show, talk, talk show, I imagined Lisa and I sitting here acting cool, torturing some other person who would be in between having the job of painfully drawing information out of us and we could sit here in the time-honoured role of musicians, not playing along to anybody's game. I was, that was what I was looking forward to. But it's just the two of us and we're having to uh, do that role ourselves. Is, look, hey, that's a legitimate complaint. <laughs> During the uh, show, I'm going to have to put on some reading glasses. Sorry about that. But uh, I got them made, as you'll see, as I said, they're rather like the glasses a criminal would wear. Or a film director. I'm sure you've seen a film director in this sort of thing. So, Lisa, perhaps to bring people into the room with us, what was the last musical activity you did before coming here tonight? Before coming here tonight, at the moment, um, I'm working on a, an Australian film, actually, which is by Paul Curry. He did another film called One Perfect Day. And I worked with Paul on The Passion of Christ um, quite a while ago now, and we've become very close friends. We actually built schools in Africa together for a while, and um, so it's been really great working with him. And his film is really interesting. It's, it's been... A real journey, as they always are, but it's just nice to have that intimacy and closeness with someone that you don't feel like you have to get to know them really quickly, try and unlock their vision, and that you ha- actually have an empathy and an understanding of where this person's heart is. And I just got back from Europe because I had the amazing cyclical kind of experience, um, which... I just, it just really shows me, and I know for anyone that is in any kind of world of art, it's usually something that we never really know what's going to happen, and we're not really employed by anyone, we just, it's our passion that drives us, and we keep believing that somehow something will come up, and it does inevitably, even if there is time that passes in between different opportunities to express ourselves. But I was in Bulgaria, I remember when I was 20, I would have been 21, I think, um, and I was living in in London, in very, in quite a quite um, a low income kind of environment, and someone offered us uh, to have our names as guests on the door for this concert, which was quite a show. It was the Bulgarian Voix de Bulgar. You may have heard of them. Some of you may have heard of them. And they have cathedrals in their mouths. They're the most beautiful singers. You've Honestly, they sing within a very small range. 
Um, but their startup singing is open throat technique and they came onto the stage like huge uh, triangles of colour with these amazing headdresses and costumes on, singing and smiling. And I was so overwrought and I remember hearing them and just... I was, it was so cathartic for me, I couldn't stop weeping and I was so excited to be there and came home and all the way home I was trying to sing the way they sounded, and, which isn't a straightforward thing. I mean, they've got a particular technique. And, but I just fell so, so deeply in love with them and they gave me so much courage because they gave out this beautiful sense of joy and at that time, we were growing up, as you know, which I want to talk to you about exactly next, actually, um, is that we grew up in a very sort of like um, that you were born out of some strange darkness that you didn't really know, but you had to invent for yourself to flower within somehow, you know, being sort of in the 80s and what have you. And, and I don't think any of us really understood it, but it was something that was sort of like a rasa, like a blank page, that we were all sort of almost identical, but at the same time found a unique pathway out of it, of this really strange womb. And it was in Melbourne, of course. And um, so when I saw all this colour and these smiles and this joy and this beauty, I thought, oh, thank you. You know, yes, I, I want to give that through my singing. That's, that's what I want to give and I felt somehow a sense of membership or, or permission to do something that was really loving and you know through these women and you know it's remarkable because I will cut a very long story short that was many 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 years ago and recently I was invited to go to Bulgaria and write pieces for those women to sing can you believe that and I was just, I couldn't hold back the tears. When I got the invitation, I just thought, look at this. This is why we must celebrate human life and do everything we can to perpetuate our, um, the time that we have here and protect it and nurture it and prolong it as long as we can because we never, we just don't know when the continuation of that circle is going to come, when that full circle you know, where that taught me so much and it, it made me humble and reverent and really feel a sense of success in a way that I'd never felt before because I felt my boat's been on the right river. I've ended up exactly here. I got to that room of women. They were astonishing. I fell madly in love with every single one of them. I never wanted to leave them. I was so... They were so humble and lovely and their voices were astonishing and I just thought I've got to encourage others that no matter how dark it gets or how terrible it can be at times, that just hang in there because you get these rewards and it can be something as, as fragile as having an opportunity to embrace the very thing that gave you courage in the first place and give something back to it. I just wanted to ask Dave, like I know you, I know we've all had, probably had those kind of experiences, you know, whether they be broad strokes or small strokes. And I'd love if you have had those experiences yourself to contribute to this 
communication tonight and in, so that we can all encourage each other that it is worthwhile. And the only people that we really have that understand how we feel is really each other. Because nobody else really gets it. They think we're just at home having a great time playing guitars and, you know, singing songs all day. They don't realise that we have to have such an internal journey to feel qualified to share the pathways of the heart. So, Dave, um, when Dave and I met, it was many, many years ago, and we were both born of that same Melbourne kind of like... It was like a shadow where we were all sort of more or less terrified of each other because we were, I suppose in a way I felt from my own experience, and Dave can answer that, that we were terrified for others to find out that we weren't very clever at all and that we probably didn't really know what we were doing, you know. And so we had to be very quiet and, um, uh, I don't know, elusive in a way. How do you feel about your past in Melbourne when you first started music? Uh, I think Lisa's talking about that kind of early 80s post-punk scene in Melbourne mm. <clears throat> and Melbourne itself was uh, a place that shut up at 10pm, 7-Elevens uh, were exciting places. <laughs> um, every Easter there was a beer strike <laughs> and uh, it was terrifying to the populace that they had to drink Perth beer for <laughs> a week because they'd stock up on so much and then drink it on the first night. But anyway, Melbourne was a, uh, a place where people made their own fun, I guess, which is uh, why it's been a, quite a creative place, actually, in comparison to mm. other Australian cities. People turn out for music in Melbourne in numbers and enthusiasm and engagement that is very different in uh, Sydney and... Uh, and, and it's it's bigger than the other cities, Adelaide and Perth. But um, <clears throat> Melbourne at the time, we were young, of course, and mm -hmm. unsure of ourselves and uh, fearlessly trying on uh, uh, costumes and attitudes and modes. But, um, but uh, yeah, well, and, and terrified of all the things that young people are, like sex, that sort of thing. And... Um, but you communicated through uh, through pieces of clothing and you assumed a lot about other people from a distance. And when you're young, your vision is piercing. You can see it's narrow but piercing. When you're older, you see more and you're not so sure of things. Uh, more sure but not not as confident in, in your, in your uh, statements. <laughs> but anyway... So that was, Melbourne was like that and um, I, I was very uh, unsure of myself at the time. I, I couldn't express myself in the way I wanted to. But um, mm. we were scrabbling around in a, in a place where we had fantasies, I guess, but the world wasn't coming to the party. It was difficult to find, um, say... Uh, clothes, food, uh, cl shoes off the rack. There wasn't anything in... People are off wearing things nowadays that we co probably coveted in 1979, 80, but you couldn't find anywhere, but you can get them anywhere now, like uh, thin, you know, uh, 60s kind of suits for, for boys. Uh, you know, you couldn't find... you find them in an op shop if you're lucky. But... Um, um, a lot of uh, a lot of the I don't know 
fashion houses, I don't know, like Alana Hill kind of stuff. <laughs> it's it's what w- girls were wearing at the Seaview Ballroom in 1979. So um, w- so we were kind of inventing things in a way uh, amongst a, sh- a shadowy collective. But anyway, to describe how uh, how you uh, confronted a situation, my band was really. N- n- you know, trying to do stuff but not very good at it. And you'd play wherever you could and there was a pub called The Rising Sun in Richmond. I don't know whether you know that. It's on Swan Street and uh, it's a road, uh, Lennox Street or something. And we were playing in there and Lisa was the was playing as well. Mm. And uh, Lisa was uh, just striking, striking uh, tall female uh Full of glamour and uh, and uh, strangeness, and playing a piano accordion, uh, put through so many effects. It was because uh, I don't know. It was a time of effects, affected sounds. You know, people mm. people not learning techniques, but just pressing buttons on on pedals and that. And and your vocals were so uh, had so much effect on them. And the mixer was was just gazing at. at at least uh, in adoration and probably leaning on the uh, reverb and <laughs> delays as he uh, he wandered towards her uh, but the the pub was full of uh, broke down old Richmond fans <laughs> yeah <laughs> drunk drunk buggers with their backs turned to us so uh it wasn't like a, it wasn't like a, a a community where where people could go into and uh, be safe with like-minded types. You were doing what you wanted to do to people who weren't interested. <laughs> That's true, and they were. It was as important as playing in the Paris Opera House or the Royal Albert Hall now. You know, I remember when we used to walk into those environments, they were the places that they were that we became, gave us an opportunity to share our poetry and, and anything that we felt was pure that we wanted to share, that was important to share. And even though no one was listening, there's something divinely arrogant within youth that bypasses all of the cynicism or all of the, the you know, the empty kind of um, gratitude. Uh, for that kind of thing, and you just completely float past it in this state of um, of self purpose and that in some way that your message and and that very beautiful thing that 's in your heart is going to somehow change the world mm-hmm. and it 's so powerful I, you probably had those moments those euphoric kind of moments yourselves where you know, it, you might be alone when everyone's left the house and you're performing in the silence of your bedroom or whatever, where you just feel so connected to something really unique and special, you know, and those environments were so great for us because otherwise we were really, apart from the street, because I don't know about you, Dave, but I played a lot in the street and I found it so wonderful to have the natural reverb of the streets. Of course, you'd always find a place where you sounded better than you actually were. But having actually stages, you know, like real stages that you could go into. And I was underage, of course. I remember 
when my parents found out that I was playing there. I was punished by um, being submitted into the Parkdale Musical Society, which was a punishment, I can assure you, doing Oklahoma, when I thought that through my abstract language that in some way that I was bringing something precious and new and, you know, alive to the world. But, yeah, no, it was amazing. And when I look back at the people that grew up out of that, out of that very time, like, you know, the birthday party, mm-hmm. boys next door... Uh, of course, and Ron Rouge, and there was one guy there. I'd love to find him. I've often thought I should put something online and see if I can find him. He was called the Human Synthesizer. Do you remember him? And he I had a bucket mm. with um, a microphone in the bucket, which again, Ron controlled his reverb. So there was a lot of verb. And he did this extraordinary performance with this bucket and this mic, grunting and groaning and and these high-pitched wails and the feedback coming, and then he'd dive towards um, a speaker and create this extraordinary uh, thing between my, with the speaker, the feedback, and the, and the bucket, and create this kind of, like, amazing, whirring kind of feedback thing. He was so creative. And when we left Australia, and we'd been in that environment wherever there was the little bands and everyone was doing something extraordinary and extremely brave. And we got to London and I remember being really disappointed at how uncreative it was. When Melbourne, and I often talk to my daughter about that, she's here tonight, that there is something kind of about these sort of like out-of-the-way places like Melbourne that it is really tough to find your identity in that creates something, it, it strengthens you in a way, mm-hmm. that it gives you that extra strength. Because did you find that when you got to England that it was like, I just thought it would be so much more interesting. <laughs> did you feel that? Uh, my own situation, I was often always acting out other people's stories or lives and uh, so I was a bit kind of lost from that but uh, I I remember the birthday party always saying how disappointed they were because like you say uh, places like Melbourne uh, and and places other places within Australia have produced great artists of recent years Perth the most isolated city has produced Tame Impala and um, you know uh, and uh, the drones and um, people who are so far off the grid that they look at the world mm. with fevered fantasies and uh, and they believe in it more than anybody else. <laughs> and uh, so and they act on their, their impulses. But um, so I, I didn't have the same disappointment. I found London quite, for instance, I landed in London. I've always been a bit of a fantasist and... Uh, I landed in London in 1983 and I'd sp- I only had uh, 70 pounds and I went to a market and spent 50 on a leather jacket because <laughs> I wanted to look like a member of the Black Panthers who are, of course, African-Americans. So, uh, but anyway, we, we, we lived in a squat, but the squat was in West Hampstead, one of the most genteel parts of London. And I thought, oh, well, this squatting is quite good. You know, it's it's a bit like the TV show The Good Life. And it was still, it was, you know, it had no real running water or bathroom, but we were in England, so uh, mm. didn't bother anybody else. And uh, it's a bit of a, a 
bit of a bit of a silly joke there, but uh, the, the uh, basement was uh, flooded with water and uh, all, all that kinds of stuff. We were chucked out on the street in the end. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I found it quite exciting, London, in that way. I thought I think the thing that surprised me about it was that what we were doing that we thought was so unique was actually a fashion. That it was actually part of a fashion movement, and that just surprised me so much when I felt that everything we were doing in Melbourne was was walking away from fashion, that it was something where that we were sort of going through this metamorphosis of being born as as uniquely as we possibly could without any of the trappings of, you know, the things that seem to be of the world, if you like. And when I got to England and realised that the movement of music that we were sort of somehow accidentally became a part of, it was very fashionable. But it was, it was a kind strange, of, kind of weird. It was a strange dynamic because that crowd of people were all consuming English and American magazines, yeah, and uh, but really and rejecting uh, suburban Australian culture. But in the same way, in many ways, they were what would be denigrated over the last couple of decades as elitist. Yeah. But they were right. The, 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 what they were doing was better than the pub rock, which was is now seen as uh, mm. the music of the time. But um, I, I wondered where you got that, uh, you, you, what, what you thought you were doing then, Lisa. I know it's hard when you're thinking of when you were a couple of decades ago, but most uh, um, male performers, everybody begins in some sort of mimicry and there are so many people for males to copy, so many, and, and so few for women. I think Who it depends you where at? you're... Well, I came from a family, an Irish, um, English, Anglo-Irish background, and my father was Irish, off the boat, kind of 10 pounds to Australia with a pregnant wife who was 17. And their family came and they lived in quite a very, very low-income area in East Paran at that time. And uh, it was a huge Irish community uh, that everyone came to live at the same house when they came from Ireland off the boat. So there was a lot of Chanel singing and a lot of... Music was something that didn't come to me through um, the television set because mm. we didn't have one. It came from the families getting together in the football and church, you know, mass and all that sort of thing. After mass, everyone would get together and have a sing and play the accordion and all that or tin whistles or whatever. Mm. And so it became from that where that became alive before I can even remember. So I didn't really connect with the pop scene as much as I did with my father where it came to music. I always felt more at home with that world than anything that came to me through television. Somebody did a, a, a research into how, how many pianos were imported into Australia in the 19th century. They could see the ship's logs, how many came. And there was a period uh, back then where, where before so recorded music that music was not something so distant from people's lives. It was like you're describing. Yeah. It was part of the language. And I remember, because, and maybe I often think, why, do I, why did I start singing without needing a practical language? And I think, well, we, brought, we were brought up in a Greek-Arab area um, where there wasn't a lot of familiarity with language, spoken language on the street. Plus a lot of the people at home spoke Gaelic. Mm. 
plus a lot of the singing wasn't in English. So there was never that boundary of practical kind of lines that couldn't be crossed because that's another person's language. It always seemed, the thing that always motivated me from hearing someone sing was their love for what they were doing and the excitement and the thing that would give you chills, even if their voice was completely broken and they only sang three notes. Somehow it seemed to connect to you. You were moved, you were connected. So I never had any of the kind of... Um, I never had any of the, the pressures to conform to a certain cultural mm -hmm. kind of popular medium of music, which I often think, oh, maybe that's why I continued to sing. And then when I was ridiculed a lot, when I went into the pub scene or the, you know, the Rising Sun mm -hmm. Hotel scene or the Champion Hotel or the Crystal Ballroom, my peers didn't like me at all. They thought I was extremely pretentious and didn't know. And I, but because I'd had such an encouraging background from my father and mother, which, you know, I really inspire, I really encourage this in other people and have learnt this with my own daughter, that's really important is to inspire her, encourage her all the time. You know, because my father would say things to me like, well, you know, daughter, you're a great girl. You know, nobody ever puts the rubbish out as well as you do. You know, you're just the best there is, you know. And you'd hear this mantra all the time. And if I sang in an unknown language, my father would encourage me and say, gosh, that, that, was, that was lovely. What was that last tune you did there now? Show me that. And, you know, sort of thing. He would never bring attention to the fact that it was different. Do you know what I mean? And he was kind of almost buffered anyone away. He was very protective when it came to other people. My mother's informed me with this. I don't remember a lot of these things, but she has told me that he was always very careful to keep people away from saying, what's she doing, John? He'd say, she's enjoying herself and she's being a great singer today. You know, <laughs> things like that. And um, so I think a lot of the things that happened in Melbourne, which I didn't connect to, but I grew very much out of. It was almost like an initiation mm -hmm. in a way that in order for us to be heard as poets, that we had, that was the only place that we could actually go to perform. Mm -hmm. And it was terrible. It was terrifying. People were very cynical. They were, most of them, quite affluent, which was something I wasn't used to. They came from fairly affluent backgrounds, even though they were very punky looking, they all had posh accents and things. And I'm like, I was really surprised by that because I thought we're in such rough places. Do you, know, do you understand what I mean? There were so many dichotomies of things that just didn't fit. But of course, you know, you don't worry about those sort of things. And people were very cruel um, about my singing. And when I got to London, and I started writing pieces of music myself to perform, I went through a second layer of people just being really annoyed at me because <laughs> I wasn't um, intellectualising through words and what have you, what I, that I, what I was doing. They just thought I was a bit mad or a bit eccentric or, or whatever. And then you'd get the occasional individual that would come forward weeping and say... Your, your voice has made me cry today. Thank you. you know, I needed that cry. I needed to have a good cry. So you always had a little bit of encouragement from somewhere and your own human arrogance, as I said to Lashen earlier, that, you know, it's that 
arrogance of youth that is the very source material of what will keep you going. Don't let anything touch that. And even as adults, you know, we're still children. And, you know, we go through just as much humility, especially if you're doing film work. You know, there's so much humility and there's so much um, that happens that you have to deny your own self-importance and really dig deep for why you do this. How, why do you do this? And are you really going to let this opinion or the fact that this person's motivated by budget or, or whatever, which of course you're involved in, are you going to let that be the reason that drives you? Or are you going to let the thing that drives you is that even in this poverty, and it might be in a film or, or wherever it is that you play, even within that poverty-stricken form, that there just might be one little diamond of cathartic truth that connects you and makes you feel like somehow you belong and that you have a right to be here regardless of how much you loathe yourself? Well, I think there was also the, the variety of venues around at that time. This is the early 80s. The poverty of uh, lack of choice of anybody else, and anything else to do. dangerous <laughs> places. I mean, there was always a bottle fight or something of drunk people on the street afterwards, wasn't there? It was, it was really quite different. For me personally, it took me ages to find some sort of uh, tone of expression that I that I I, I could uh, you know you know use or you know be comfortable with or express mm. myself with and you know I just consider myself to have been terrible for about a decade and I thank all the people <laughs> who are coming to shows putting up with uh, pretty uh, just I don't know somebody getting it together I don't know people were willing to give things a chance I think in that you were very dedicated are quite and, generous and there in those was days. great passion in your work and you could hear that a lot of care had gone into doing it, you know. It, a lot of care had gone into doing it. I don't you know. know so the standards were pretty high. Like mm. there was a lot of peer group pressure amongst, you know, people to really put a lot of care into what they were doing. Lisa was talking about the, uh, the people being horrible to her this is in the world, I guess, you know, before social media, but there wasn't even any... Uh, it was like a music scene beneath another music scene. And there, there were magazines and, uh, like, a weekly Melbourne music magazine called Duke. There was, a, I don't know, maybe a monthly Australian one called Ram Magazine and there was Rolling Stone. There was probably quite a lot more media, but... It was uh, very Sydney-related or Melbourne-related and mm. very industry-related. And, and we're talking about people who are really on the bottom. A large kind of... Because I guess the music scene we're talking about was like a rebellion against music itself in a way. Like yeah. a, so it was quite like yeah. an art movement in some ways for, for the ones who, uh, who, who, who took it seriously and... Uh, but within that world, it was like being in a village. Maybe that's what being young is like and you can see each other amongst a crowd of people. You can just see the ones who were on your team. But you'd walk down the street, mm. nothing would be reflected back to you through any sort of television, radio or, you know, no, uh, computers no, were really invented. we didn't have invented. a radio station to go to. It was just conversation and it, things, people so cutting true. each other, ignoring each other in the and street. And speaking mm. in an abstract language through their music, mm. that in somehow 
even if we didn't particularly like each other, which no one seemed to like each other much back then. Um, it's true. That it's true, isn't it? was it? quite competitive. That we sort of thought, well, this is it, really. This is, this is it. We've got to get there and we've got to do it. Something motivates us. Is there anyone here that was around at that time, like in, in those places, like Crystal Ballroom or... Look at you. Mm. I know. It's hard to believe, though, isn't it? I mean, I can't believe Dave's sitting here mm. when I think of all those years ago when really we were children mm. and we shouldn't have been in those places. We are probably far too young. <clears throat> and yet they were like a place where you could be freed of the horrible mediocrity of your this is the, education. This is the George Hotel in St Kilda, if you're wondering. It, it, it was, was really special. It was quite a, a good place because uh, King's Cross and St Kilda had an uh, underworld that was very exciting. Mm. You could drift through it because in, in most cases the criminal uh, so culture didn't... Like you were invisible to them. Yeah. But but it had a great pull. My first experience in St Kilda, I came across in, in a, a youth football team and uh, it was the best players of country, South Australia, Victoria, playing in Melbourne. And, of course, I, I wanted to be a football star and we stayed in a, a hotel next to the George Hotel and somebody had the... It was under under 16 or... Something and somebody had to have the job of buying beer for the team, and I went to the uh, the uh, pub and bought uh, two dozen cans of beer, maybe four dozen, and I was staggering out with them. I walked into two policemen who uh, <laughs> swore so much at me. I never knew policemen swore, but uh, we we went. We had other adventures. We went down the street. There were people all dressed in black leather with shaven heads and stuff. It was. Mm. I come from Mount Gambier, South Australia, never seen anything like that. And there was a Sharpie guy from Hamilton who wanted to fight somebody from Melbourne. So he got oh, to the big gosh. boys to walk with him down the street to bump into somebody just so he could have a fight with a Melbourne person. And mm. that was my experience of the CV ballroom. And then a couple of years later we were sort of playing there. But it was run by a fellow called Graham Richmond who was president of the Richmond Football Club famous character for doing deals and having a fight on the field one day with a, a, an opposing coach, I think. <clears throat> so it was quite a mixture of, of exciting cultural streams, the uh, music. Graham Richmond <clears throat> was a very lovely guy. He'd come in at, you know, after the Brownlow count, you know, in his tuxedo and he'd, he'd you know, bash a few people. I'm, I'm saying that casually, but no, throw a few people out. He had two offsiders who were like uh, Igor or something out of uh, Hound of the Baskervilles movie or Count Dracula's offsiders kind of limping behind him, Toddy and Laurie. And, uh, but uh, he would say, um, what do you think of this band, the Def Dead Kennedys boys? What do you reckon? What do you reckon we should get them in? And uh, he's very interested in the things that were going on, but... It was quite a, it, it was a residential hotel too. It had quite elderly uh, long-term residents and you could look at the balcony coming along the street and it seemed to have a, there was a lot of big Maori presence in, in St Kilda at the time and there'd be, you know, some big fat bloke up there reading the paper and, you know, smoking a joint or something. It was quite an exciting area. Um, so the uh, Hunters and Collectors uh, 
like they they started rehearsing in there. They rehearsed in there for six months because they owned the PA that was in the room. Mm. And uh, uh, when Lisa says these people from the scene were quite from affluent backgrounds, yeah, yeah, that, <laughs> yeah, yeah, people were from uh, generally private schools in the music scene. Yeah. But anyway, it's really interesting. They did their first gig there at the Seaview Ballroom, and they'd rehearsed there for six months. They sounded incredible. They drew about four or five hundred people to the place, packed it out, just murdered it. And but Dead Can Dance did the same thing. <clears throat> you did your first gig downstairs at the Seaview Ballroom, and it was absolutely packed. Strange. You'd spend a lot long time rehearsing, getting this blistering sound together. Mm, that was <coughs> predominantly Brendan's effort <coughs> because I never really thought that I'd be a part of Dead Can Dance. I didn't think I was much more into the sort of avant-garde side of music and did things to help him so that if he needed some syncussion played or a singer or, um, or you know, just things, bits of percussion, played, I played bass guitar for him for a while, which, of course, I couldn't play, but I had to just play a few notes, so just learn a few things to sort of keep things together. But um, he did. He, he had such a vision. He really did. And it wasn't until we got to Ron Roods and Ron had said to me, will you come with your accordions and your yang chins and um, I'd love to record you in uh, my studio in Belgrave, which was just so amazing for me. And I said to Brendan, would you like to come? And he never really understood what I was doing. He wasn't sure about it and he'd seen me perform and he wasn't convinced by it, but he liked something about it. He thought it was interesting. Brendan, uh, Brendan or... Brendan. Brendan. Right. Ron, Ron was different, of <clears throat> course. He was just so excited and so enthusiastic about what I was doing. And... Um, we went and Brendan found, I said, do you want to come and, and perform something? And he said, well, I've come, but I, I didn't bring any instruments. And I said, well, what do you think we should do? And uh, he went and got some kerosene cans from outside in the garden. And he set them up and Ron put some mics up and what have you. And he started to play this extraordinary rhythm on this, it was a piece called Frontier. It's the very first piece we ever wrote together that I wasn't kind of like his session musician person. And, um, and it was astonishing. And then he put some vocals against the back of that, which of course Ron was experimenting a lot with reverbs at that time. So there was no direct dry signal in there and it created this very haunting sound. And then I just improvised some yang chins and sang this song that all of this took place within a matter of a few hours and we didn't really pay much attention to it but it became the piece that actually got our record contract with 4AD they fell in love with this piece and so we sort of started to work together quite by accident and I think that Brendan has really been the, the my relationship with him and the fact that he has had such a unique um, powerful and uniquely powerful presence and dedication to the architecture of the work has really liberated me from a place of being very obscure to a place of fascination because he created this extraordinary fundament for me to bring something quite abstract to, which became 
kind of um, fascinating for people. They were, they were surprised by this collaboration and it really helped to, to embrace. Where in Melbourne it was very much Brendan, very much the marching girls from mm -hmm. New Zealand. Are we talking about the right things? Is this, is this stuff interesting or should we be talking about other things? Because if you feel that, you know, it's boring or, you know, whatever, don't walk out. Just say, look, I thought it was going to be about X or whatever. And you can sit up here and Dave and I can sit down. <laughs> yeah. The plan, the, the plan is for us to uh, chat and then there will be a Q&A uh, yeah. at some point. But it'd be really great, I mean, to know how you feel and why did you come? Like, what mm. is it that interested you? It, what is it that you hoped to achieve? Yes, Lisa was just talking about the beginnings of uh, anarchy, of dead can dance, <laughs> and the, the, her partner. She was collaborating with Brendan Perry. Came from it's it's quite amazing the ability for young people to reinvent themselves and turn on a dime and mm. become somebody else. Brendan was in a a group that came from New Zealand called the Scavengers, who That's are right, yeah. and and, the and with. Musicians who were till recently still active in Melbourne, Des Hefner and uh, and uh, Johnny Volume, and they were they were kind of friends of ours, and often at parties. And uh, Des and John are always getting in in uh, in in fights because just because Des was oh. tall, and if you were tall, people would, would pick a fight with you. They weren't violent. Well, they were a little bit violent, but <laughs> it's part of coming from New Zealand, where everybody loves to have a scrap there. Uh, tough people, but um, mm. we always found it hilarious and it, that they had punk rock names in the scavengers. And uh, I'm not saying doing saying this to embarrass them. I, I thought it was fantastic. Des Hefner was Destruction. John Cook was Johnny Volume, and Brendan was Ronnie Nose. <laughs> and uh, uh, but they they morphed into the Marching Girls in in Melbourne who. <clears throat> have a kind of emblematic tune in the film Dogs in Space where the female character is getting dressed for an, it's probably the best part of, uh, you know, the movie where it depicts a, a, a young woman getting dressed for a night out and the excitement she feels, a Saturday night coming along and she's playing a song and it's the marching girl's true love that, that's playing, so... But but over, over seemingly the few hours that um, that uh, Lisa's talking about, he 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 turned into a Brendan Perry, a kind of must have been over mm. a summer or something. He turned he'd, into a he had he'd exposed himself a lot to polyrhythms and mm. African rhythms and um, and a more abstract type of work. And we became very close friends with Frank and Marissa Lavis. And that they introduced us to a lot of other areas of music that he started to form ideas on how to express his original way of coming to those things. But you had a question. Yes, sorry. You? Sorry. You're supposed to hit it and say, this gears up the shit. <laughs> it usually works. There you go. Hello. <laughs> okay. You asked um, why we'd be here tonight. Yes. I can go back to that. And um, I don't know whether you know this, Lisa, but you're... One of your songs, in fact, several are pieces of music rather than songs. Um, I first heard when I was in deep therapy in a spooky monastery in Warrandyte, mm. and there were 18 adults all with mental problems. And we, um, it was an intensive residential course over seven days. 
and we were all there for various reasons. And um, they played um, some of your pieces, and we were all lying on the floor at the time, all troubled people without, you know. So, and your music was absolutely fantastic, and it moved me to tears. There was you and another a woman called Georgia Kelly, who plays mm. the harp and very ethereal, beautiful music. Mm -hmm. And I just wanted you to know, you probably helped a lot of people express very deep emotions that were yeah. coming out at the that's time. That's the it thing that I think it's really, Exactly, and that's where music is really important. And I think we should celebrate um, how precious it is that when you think that somebody that's suffering from Alzheimer's that doesn't know who anyone is in the room, but they still remember the songs of their childhood, you know, and I, we do communicate to a different place with singing, I think especially with singing, um, and it almost seems in some way more measured not to interrupt a person's personal experience by putting onto them what you feel, what your, your words are, but instead delivering a sound to them that unlocks a sound within them. You know, I remember Paul Carey, the director I'm working with at the moment, that said... Um, he rang me one day, and we'd been building schools, and I said, Paul, where are you? I hadn't heard from him for a while. And he said, I'm in jail. And I thought, oh, God, that's terrible. And I said, I thought he was ringing me to get bailed out or something. And I, and I remember thinking at the time, oh, no. You know when you feel really embarrassed when somebody's going to ask you for money and you sort of think, oh, I wish I wasn't... You don't know what to do kind of thing, but you're in that state of kind of para paralysed kind of like... Anyway, and I, I said, what if... I said, look, I don't want to know what you've done. He said, no, 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 Lisa. No, it's OK. I, and I thought, how can it be OK? I was so upset and I thought, I've got to go and get him. And he said, no, 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 no. I'm here and I'm playing your singing without music. I'm just playing it. And he said, and I've had a hundred at least men in jail weeping and weeping and weeping. He said, they've just kept everything locked inside for so long. And they were just... When one started to weep, another one started... And then they all just started to just pour out tears... He said, I had to call you, you know, and it just, something gets touched. It can be a symbol or it can be a sound. Something that's pure, that's sincere can come and it just unlocks this place of protection that we have to have up all the time to keep us safe from any kind of arrows of, from outside. You know, we have to have our armour. And suddenly something like a song or a poem can crack that armour and, and before you know it, the original person is revealed to us who, is we, who we really are and how fragile we are. You know, it's really important that we allow or do through our work. I feel it's a response to reality, of course, and I know everyone has their own individual experience with it as Dave does too and he's very good at being invasive and um, keeping these things but I've worked with him in the studio and he's extremely fragile um, you know he came to my house and he he was so sensitive and so fra and so extraordinary and so captivating um, in the studio it was astonishing you know um, 
and you really felt that there, it was a, a half, directly from the heart to the mouth, you know, that there was something so sincere going on. And I think that's the one thing that I really have tried, I hope, to, to encourage in all of us here, and I hope we can do it with others and especially our peers coming up through the ranks now. You know, these children have got a tough world to live in. And um, if we can encourage them, look, no matter how small your contribution is, be truthful and above all things, be kind. You know, even you don't have to be brilliant. Just be kind. You know, the one thing that you, I, I look back and when we were in Melbourne at how tough we were with each other, you know, and how it would have been amazing to have just one or two experiences where people were kind, you know, because we really had to believe and fight on. And I often think about the casualties of those times that couldn't survive the cynicism and the cruelty, when really all we were doing was being poets. The uh, you know. recent generations are very different if you go to a musical performance of uh, people in their 20s or 30s. They, they thank each other all night after every song and they thank the venue and the building. You know, they have much higher expectations. On. They're facing a lot of things that, I don't know, we've managed to escape a lot of things. And I often, when I talk to young Lushner, I, I think, my God, look at how you've evolved and you're so young. And I think we were still children when we were 20 or 22. We were like little kids, you know, and now they're having to really get out there and face a really tough world where there's so much information and Facebook and having to present well and being spoken about and, and having all that onslaught. At least we could hide, you know. Sorry? Kind of off topic a little bit, but I just... You asked the question before about why we were here. Yes. And I guess one of my reasons is that I'm a big fan of Dave Graney, as I mentioned before, but also Tex Perkins and Nick Cave and this whole era of Melbourne rock that grew right through the 90s. My first experience of rock really was at the Lily Pond at the Big Day Out in 1995, seeing, you know, Tex Perkins and the Cruel Sea and Dave Graney has been the Coral Snakes and a few other things. Um, I'm really interested in, I guess, just that whole era of... That you know, period. That period, to mm -hmm. me, is really exciting. Lisa, I'm, your part into that is also very interested to me. But, yeah, Dave, you know, that period is just something I'm really intrigued with. I was <coughs> super young, so I right. missed it. I got to hear it on CD. But, yeah, mm. just how you lived it would have been great to hear. Um, oh, it depends. Uh, um it's hard to talk about music, you know, without, you know, talking about the novelty of different periods or, or uh, you know, some, mention some act's name and, and they dominate the period when, when it was probably richer, you know, people talk about the 60s and it's just the Beatles, but there was the, the Kinks and the Rolling Stones and Motown and Stax and, um, and you know, Miles Davis putting out, um, you know kind of blue, just the music business was so much more sophisticated um, and it moved so much quicker. It's strange now that uh, people are so switched on. But, uh, <clears throat> you know, I, I read, a re <clears throat> read a review of an <clears throat> Englishman going to see a, a band he'd last seen in, uh, 
1990 and, and it was 2010 when he, he was seeing them again and he said they sounded exactly the same and how bad is that? <laughs> and I don't know, uh, the, the, the digital era has uh, wiped away a lot of, uh, I don't know, it's just been a period of pastiche and parody. Uh, the, the 90s was uh, the kind of the wave of, of the late 70s uh, kind of post-punk period kind of reaching some critical mass and, and it was uh, the last era of uh, large international record companies and for a time it was quite exciting with uh, international artists of... of uh, the black English community, uh, tricky and massive attack, and um, I don't know, brilliant musicians from from, from Britain, and, and they had this whole kind of drum and bass thing happening, and great creativity, and a strange act like Pulp um, just got a were able to come through in a way, and uh, in Australia it happened a bit, and. Uh, and it was the influence of Triple J as, as a national uh, radio broadcaster. And uh, just uh, I'd, I'd always wanted to live in London and I got kicked out of London in about uh, 1988 and said, you know, I didn't have a proper visa. So I had to land back in Melbourne and built, uh, pick myself up again and, you know, loved playing in Melbourne, had more opportunity to play, so... Uh, just played around a lot and um, loved doing it. And uh, when Triple J went national, they kind of looked out for acts who were out and about playing and they hopped onto them. And it was people like people like my band and the Cruel Sea. They hopped onto us and we kind of went out. And, uh, and you know, I meet people nowadays, like a fellow came to a gig in Sydney last year and he said he grew up in Townsville and they were testing Triple J's uh, signal in Townsville. And for two weeks, they just played my album. <laughs> <laughs> so it's just dumb luck, you know, that sort of thing, really. And the, it was a strange period, you know, I felt very out of it, you know. I felt like, uh, not like an imposter, but I felt like, uh, I always read lots of crime literature and I drew from that and I felt myself to be some sort of uh, a person in disguise, a person nobody could see the real person and I was quite, I really enjoyed that. And, uh, and uh, there was rock festivals and I thought rock festivals were so stupid and uh, the big day out returned. It, it turned out to be quite a good thing, you know, playing to people who, who couldn't get into pubs and that, but... I thought, wow, rock festivals, it is so bad that they are coming back, you know. Who wants to stand in a paddock? Everything sounds the same. It, and it is. It's a terrible way to hear music. And um, <clears throat> so anyway, it, 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 I always wrote about my situation. This, this is just to tell how I wrote one song. I have one song that I can play at any gig I do and people really respond to it. It has certain elements to it that, you know, I know why it works, but, uh, you know, musically I know. It's got a great groove. It's called Rock and Roll is Where I Hide. It has no chorus. It has a ton of words, but it's got this dramatic, grooving story that goes on. And I, I started to write it because when I was in my earlier band, The Moodists, 
who were contemporaries of the go-betweens and the birthday party and that. We played at a gig at a 24-hour disco in Hamburg and uh, the support act was East Germany's premier rock band uh, who all looked like a heavy metal band. They, they were all, you know, long hair and that, but they were surrounded by Stasi and stuff and we were sharing the band room but they couldn't talk to us and we were just drinking all this liquor and, uh, you know, snorting speed and, you know, uh, doing what rock groups do. And... Uh, and then they, but they were like rock and more rock and roll looking than us. And uh, but they were a government sponsored band to show that their their culture was strong and and could produce something just as good as as. And anyway, they the the comic thing was that they left and took away the entire PA and left this two little speakers on sticks that were like there when the Beatles played in Hamburg. <clears throat> and anyway, when we were playing at this rock festival in the 90s, I was thinking on that, you know, what, what if... Because uh, I was, like, from the 80s and I'm in this new world of rock festivals and Triple J and they think Nirvana is good, you know, and I, I'm thinking, you know, sounds like Boston to me. And um, and I'm thinking, wow, people are just eating this stuff up, you know. Uh, I feel like I'm adrift with codes of behaviour and beliefs that that, are, that come from another culture, but I'm here and I can't let people know that. And uh, so I, I imagined, what if a rock band was on tour from East Germany in America, and the Iron Curtain fell, and they were still there, touring under their role and their their, their mission to destroy American culture. So I wrote this song about being a songwriter, and you're. You're in the world and, and you can see everybody but they can't see you and, and you have the power to imagine everybody and then mm. then you become so good at it that people start to look at you and, and you become something and, you, and they can see you but you can't see them anymore. So it was a, it was a, a, that was what the 90s was to me. It, it was kind of one song and, and I still play it and... Um, <clears throat> It's full of drama, yeah. yeah so nobody knows the name of the song. I, we had a can, piano player for years and, you know, he's taking a leak and somebody comes up, you're going to play that fucking song about the chicken? And, uh, <laughs> and he's a jazz player. He just, he, just, he just doesn't know any of my chords. He just thinks he can go along. And he goes, well, I don't know what you're talking about. You know the fucking song I'm talking about. And... Uh, it's a song. It's it's funny to have a song like that. Yeah, it's called "Rock and Rollers Where I Hide." And at the end, it goes, uh, uh, the, you know, I go through a, a name of all these performers who had 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 names, and and I thought they were names like if you were a spy, you would have a code name, and it goes through the names like the Man in Black, John the Conqueror, the World's Forgotten Boy, Meat Man, Mister Blues, the Velvet Fog. The little cloud that cried, the best dressed chicken in town, and they're, they're all names of artists and performers that, that I've loved over the years, and they're secret codes within me. and And people always think I'm talking about myself. You know, I'm the best dressed chicken in town. I, I don't mind, but it's a reggae album by Dr. Alamantado, and uh, I'm going on. But music's strange, and it takes you to places. I went to I went to New Zealand. Uh, 
a year ago and I played and I talked about this song. It's Dr. Alamantado. This man comes up and goes, Dr. Alamantado used to come into my shop all the time. He's a fucking great guy. He's a reggae performer, uh, Dr. Alamantado. So that, that's what the 90s was to me, yes. There was another time I was playing at a, a pub a couple of years ago and this fella, it was, it was free to get in. So if, it's, if people don't pay to get in, I don't play that song, you know. <laughs> Ross Wilson from, you know, Melbourne musician icon, Daddy Cool, Mondo Rock, he says, if people want gold, they must pay gold. So I, I took that to heart. And this fella came up and he said, are you going to play that fucking song? I said, what? You know that fucking song? I said, what what song are you talking about? He goes, you know that fucking song, you know, with fucking, you know, the fucking chicken, you know, whatever. (laughs) I said, if you don't know the name of the song, I'm not not playing it. And then he comes back with this other bloke and he goes, "Uh, are you going to play his fucking song? (laughs) I said, what song's that? He goes, I don't know the fucking song. It's his fucking song. And I said, uh, I said, what, what, what song are you talking about? Goes, you know the fucking song. Are you going to play his fucking song or are we going to have to knock you around a bit? And, and I looked at him and I, I, it was so silly. I said, well, that's not going to happen, is it? And he walked off. So... <laughs> Most situations are manageable like that. But the 90s was like that for me. Uh, what were they like for you, Lisa, the 90s? Oh, How would you characterise them? Well, I, Did you I play think rock if festivals? If there's a vested interest in the birthday party and those kind of groups and what have you, um, I remember them as being... They were very theatrical and, and very committed... And uh, Nick was charismatic, wasn't he? Mm-hmm. He had such a... Even from the very early times, he was very, very young. And um, there was something slightly New York Dolls kind of about them. And they, But they seemed to have a unique quality of their own, didn't they? And in some way that they gave you um, permission to be slightly glamorous, that there was something... Something intuitive, but something slightly glamorous about them, wasn't there? They were, they were always competing for your attention in, right. in the, their performance, the, the birthday party, the boys yeah, next door. Yeah, they, they were very sweet, but um, I don't know. I met up with Nick again. I knew him. I know Nick quite. I've known him for many years, on and off, and he was with the same record label as me in London, 4AD, and they went through a very dark time in London, which I found quite disturbing. See, I've never really understood that, which is why my presence in this meeting is probably not appropriate in a sense, because I've never really connected with the dark side of the work and promoted that. I've always felt that it's something very foreign from where I want to do, but I see beauty in it, and I see a value in responding to that reality and sharing that through your poetry. Um, but I don't, I never really understood that. And I was very concerned for Nick through those years. I was very worried about the things that he was indulging in and engaging in. For many years, Nick uh, was, is like a performer and a person mm. who just has incredible physical presence. Yeah. But he's wanted to be an artist as well. But 
just incredible physical presence, which mm, like Elvis Presley or something, which uh, yeah, so charismatic and um, sort of almost like one of the lost ones that sort of get lost and somehow that others. They look at them adoringly in their state of pain. And I, I've always found that kind of disturbing, you know, with music and with, the, with that particular period of time, that there was a lot of self, I suppose, self-mutilation in a lot of the people, mm. that were, they were sacrificing and, and um, sabotaging themselves. And what it a... became a spectacle. <clears throat> and a very few survived it, a lot of heroin, Tons of tons of heroin. That's the one thing that I was really grateful for Brendan and I is that we left because of the heroin at that time. It was just devouring so many people. And Brendan and I sat down and had a talk and said, look, this isn't what we want from our work. We don't want this. This isn't what we thought it was going to be about, this whole heroin. It was running, a vein of it was running through everything. And, and these kids were rich. They weren't like us. I mean, I don't know, you were slightly more affluent than me, but I came from a quintessentially working class background and I certainly didn't have money to spend on drugs like that. You know, if anything came to me, alcohol or anything, it was because it was free. My, you know? my, uh, my dad painted the public buildings of the town. <laughs> <coughs> my mother brought up six kids. So. Yeah. So it was a really different world for people like mm. Dave and I because we were suddenly amongst people that were wealthy. They were really wealthy, weren't they? I mean, yeah. it was quite surprising. Well, what was it like at 4AD? You see, you went over there for them and there became an identifiable 4AD sound. Yeah. How did you like that, being identified with that sort of thing, the Cocteau twins and... Uh, I think from, Bren from the work that Brendan contributed to Dead Can Dance, I saw very much a link... I couldn't find my own link with that, but I thought, but I always loved Nick and I've, I've always been very, we've always had a fondness um, between us and, I, and he, he respects anyone, I think, that does this work. He has great respect because it, it is, it's really tough. And he went through a very tough world in London because they were recognised <coughs> almost instantly as being something... Mm. Um, <coughs> interesting and mm. and they and Ivo was very excited which is probably what brought him to listen to a lot of Australian bands was was the birthday party mm -hmm. really. you know, how did you get on with the Cocteau twins and that the... I love the Cocteau twins and I love Elizabeth very mm. much and we really got on so well I love them they were very sweet Scottish people that's very softly spoken really humble and a very similar background to my own coming from from, I mean, they came from Grangemouth, which is one of the poorest parts of Scotland. And um, I got on very well with them. But they, again, bought something unique and interesting from their own cultural background. There was very much a, a Scottish tradition kind of feel in, in some mm. of the lyrical kind of nature mm. of the tunes and things that they were doing. It was really pretty. What about the uh, that British phenomenon, the gothic scene and uh and northern gothic it was quite different to london gothic in the music like uh, were you ever thought of as gothic were you, were you in briefly that? briefly but really couldn't How fit the bill describe your work? we drank too much beer i think we that was our reaction to the heroin we we we, we just drank beer and just okay. people on heroin were so horribly uh duplicitous to be around and uh 
right. and boring. And full yeah, of no, full I of drama. That too. I thought it was up. really sad mm. because mm. a lot of the people I do still I still know some that survived that, but um, there are so many that didn't. Come on, let's talk about the Goths, Sisters of Mercy. Goths and Sisters. Killing I never joke. connected with that with any of those those people. We did have a thing where Brendan and I were playing in Marseille, and the Lords of the New Church came and threw a bottle of gin at us at the stage. <laughs> Lords of the New Church. That's Steve Bader's from the Steve Bader's. Steve yeah, Bader's from Steve the Dead Bader's. Boys. Oh, R.I.P. I was so horrified. I couldn't believe. They're not that They did that. What aren't they? No, no. I don't think I've ever heard their music. No. But um, that was really... But I never thought that we were gothic and I never really understand why we were given that. It became a bit of an albatross, <laughs> like this gothic. I think because we had the name dead in our yeah. name. <laughs> and I know that a lot of gothic people were extremely intelligent and sensitive people. They really mm. were. But yes. when they came to our concerts, they were very disappointed yeah. when they heard our music mm. because it wasn't gothic at all. It didn't have that dirge. Uh, what venues did you play? Did you graduate quickly to playing like a theatre kind of We area did or? lots of tours of France and Europe in the back of a van. Um, we did that thing that you do when you're young. You do a lot of travel and uh, it's extremely difficult and you don't get paid in a lot of the places you play. We got bashed up in a lot of places. Um, our instruments got taken in places and because we were trying to organise things ourselves. But then we had the great fortune that Ivo signed a deal with Warner in America and they started to buy his back catalogue. And there was a piece of music called Ubiquitous Mr Lovegrove that Brendan had written that went almost to number one by itself and it hadn't been given any promotion or anything. Mm. And that, I think, was the thing that really that was the beginning of people realising that we were there. And then we had the other good fortune of um, doing a piece of music called Yulonga, which was from an album that Brendan and I wrote piece together, and it played on National Geographic five to six times a day for a year. So that was amazing exposure with the video from Baraka. What about at that time did you... Uh... Did you have to go out and promote yourself a lot, like doing lots of talking, like now? Yeah, no, I don't talk anywhere near mm. as much as we had to then, but we did mm. We did a lot of little fanzines, lots of students. Mm. It wasn't really magazines as much as it was more to do with stuff happening at schools mm -hmm. and, and stuff. Um, but that went on for nine years. We actually worked without making very much money at all for nine years, but then after that nine years, it, we made lots of money. It just changed, you know, so quickly that we didn't really know what was happening. You know, that and then great. I know, it was amazing. We never expected it. We sort of had decided that we'll probably just continue to get by. And we saw people like Nick's group and other people's group mm. um, as being really fortunate in that sense that they, were, they seemed to be so much more popular. Oh, and I imagine the conversations in the van. <laughs> Fucking Nick Cave. <laughs> lucky, lucky Nick Cave for me. Well, you know, of course, you sort of wonder what have they got that we haven't got kind of thing. There's a bit of that for sure when you're children. But the thing is that um, it, it, I think it's 
and people say to me now, the most famous question I ever hear is, you know, how do you break into this work? You know, how do I, my daughter or my son wants to be a musician or they were in a band or whatever, how can I, and I just don't know what to tell them. And it's so tough because mm -hmm. unless you are going to go and live somewhere where you can find venues of live music and you will, you are willing to travel in a van even now, you're just not going to sell any CDs or your music's not going to get any exposure. And my daughter was telling me that there's sites now that you can go on to for, for people that are starting out new sites that people know that they're the beginning of new works and mm. things. Do you yeah. know about those days? I don't know those, no. Because that's mostly what people want to know. They want to know how to further their own musical you know, experience mm. and their, their presence in music. And it's, it's a really, it's a question I, I, I can't answer. No. Uh, yeah, I feel very ambivalent when, um, you know, people talk about music courses and music business courses. Yeah, it's kind of <laughs> weird. Bit, isn't it? it's ultimately, sort of... you have to dive in in some way. A lot of it's luck. It's whether, you know, the fact that Ivo went to Warner Brothers, if he hadn't have done that, maybe no one would have ever heard that piece. You know, it's just, it's such a risk. Mm. There has to be so much more that you want from it than being materially successful. Yes. Otherwise yeah. you won't survive. Mm. What's that, darling? Hi. Um, first of all, thank you so much. Um, thank you, thank you. Um, I'm, I'm mostly fascinated by the concept of, first of all, Dave, you said to Lisa, well, who is your inspiration when you were growing up? Well, Lisa, you were mine. So, you know, thank you. Um, I was also very fascinated by when you started talking about the architecture with you and Brendan working together and how you actually created together. Because when you both went on your solo careers, you could definitely hear the distinctive Lisa sound and the distinctive Brendan sound. But then you came back together again and made a phenomenal album, which, you know, like you, you, you hear people getting back together again and they're writing together again and you don't expect that calibre of music to pop out again, you know, after so many years. And I'm more fascinated about first, well, did, did Brendan ever get you? And, and also what was the architectural process of your, your writing process together? The writing process is very different for per every piece, as in most collaborations. If Brendan was very strict with me in the beginning and said, if you don't write the music, you don't get to sing, <laughs> which I really hated him for that because I knew that he had such a different level of standards to me that it, it, was, it all had to be sound. And he always helped me. Like, he'd, I'd get it to a point, and he'd get to the point where he was convinced that it was actually something that was worthwhile that I'd put a lot of effort into. And then he'd help me to bring it to a more generic stage where it sort of, you know, the chorus had so many bars and it wasn't written in real time that it actually had a BPM and, you know, and he'd tidy it up kind of thing, which really annoyed me. I hated it when he did that. <laughs> But I understood that in order for us to work together that I had to make that compromise. And I think some of the greatest pieces, from my perspective, that we did together were the pieces that we wrote together. There were, def there were pieces that Brendan did alone. I was very rarely allowed to work completely from the ground up alone. There's probably five, maybe ten pieces in 12 years that I was absolutely without any influence from Brendan whatsoever out of all that material. He always put a stamp on something and it was always 
he was very, very strong musically, always been very strong musically. And um, my work has always floated. It's always been more liquid where he's been a lot more grounded. And I think that's probably why it, the work complemented each other. <laughs> With the last album, I thought the really thing that I found really interesting was because I'd grown so much through film score in doing work that was almost a different, completely different esoteric of music, if you like, um, in film score that was used as an unlocking mechanism that when I went back to work with Brendan on the last album, I was absolutely forbidden to do anything that even slightly sounded film score. <laughs> so having spent sort of seven years doing film score and feeling like I was becoming quite confident at writing these pieces and opening up that aesthetic, it was hugely challenging for me to go back and work with Brendan and, and brilliant. But it was, I was really... There were times when I thought, I, I don't know if I can do it. I'm not sure if I know how to let all that I feel go so that I can allow you to enter into me with your musical influence. I'm not sure if I want you to have that power. And we've always had that conflict because of that, because I, I, like most musicians, I don't like being controlled. I don't like being manoeuvred. I can't stand people pushing me around. I can't bear it. And the minute someone does that to me, I completely move the other way and clam up. And, you know, so it was, it was hugely um, disciplinarian and self-sacrificing for me to go and do that with Brendan. I didn't enjoy it. I don't like the album. I really don't like that album. And it's purely because you never see your own work the way other people see it. It's just that I didn't like the fact that I wasn't allowed to be the strongest I'd grown into to share the strongest that Brendan was, that we didn't meet as two strong things that I had to let all that I knew go to have the divine privilege of working with Brendan. And I was angry about that. And it has, it's really affected the way I see the work. He knows I've been very honest with him about it. He's very disappointed in me that I don't love that work. But that's the truth. This is... You had grown since before you were working with him. Yes. Yeah, well, I'd grown in an area that was unique from what we'd done together. Coming back as a, as you know, a mature musician who had come into her own, mm. so in a completely were... different work surface, because when you're doing film. It's such a... You have to unlock so many layers. There's so many la um, subtextual realities that you can or cannot touch. And you must enter into an, a, an abstract kind of esoteric with your, uh, your film director. It's almost like dream time that you have to pour... Allow, they have, they, they are so, it's so cathartic for them because they have an opportunity to share a vision that they have that they feel in some ways worthwhile... And you're stepping on extremely delicate soil when you're trying to allow them to find their way with music, which they all say, well, I don't know anything about music, I wouldn't have a clue what to do, and it's our responsibility as composers, and I'm sure there's lots of composers in this room, um, it's our responsibility to give them the courage 
you see, to allow them to open up and realise that they know everything about their film and their music and their story and, and that they have a right to express themselves. And in a lot of ways, that relationship has to happen. And I think that's why I was angry with Brendan, because he didn't show me the same respect, that we could have gone to each other and really taught each other something, finally. I'm not saying it's over. I don't know if it, it... We might get back together again in the future, but I do believe that in order for a collaboration of any kind to make sense, that there has to be that mutual respect and that you can't just deny that someone's doing something that you don't... Just stay away from that person if you don't feel... And that was a process of discovery. And if I'd have realised that that was going to be the way that we worked together, then I would never have done the album. You see, so it's such a, such a weird time. And then we did 97 concerts, you know, and we did all those horrible festivals like Coachella and, you know, we're actually, in fact, the young gentleman down the back, I met up with Nick, Nick again after not seeing him for many, many years. And, and they were playing on the stage next to us. So you sort of look at these, I don't know, these people that you grew up with, that you were children with at the, back at that time, that you had to fight tooth and nail to continue to have a presence within your poetic um, medium if you like, and there they still are. I mean, Jay, Dave's still going and, and Nick was still going. And it's so wonderful to think that we really did believe in what we were doing enough to continue, that we're still here doing it. You know, it wasn't just this jaded kind of cynical approach, to, you know, thing to get attention or that we really had a sense of purpose. Would you agree with that, Dave? Yeah. <clears throat> when you're talking about working with Brendan and you you were liking the formless, uh, liquid nature of your mm. experimentation, him being into the rigidity of... Uh, Not rigidity. Uh, or or make it, making something into a generic form, you said. Uh, well, ha, ha, making my work feel more generic to me. He is beyond generic. Brendan mm. is a brilliant composer. There's yes. no question about that. I'm not saying... A recognisable form. He has the most extraordinary ability to take a simple pattern a very simple pattern and add lots of really simple patterns together and he knows exactly where to put them so that they become dramatically beautiful. Well, how did you get into uh, the film scoring with um, seemingly such intuitive approach when with film it's uh, like uh, writing to a time code and uh, the demands of the story. I didn't. I never wanted to that. do film. I hated film music. I thought it was written for music for people that didn't like music. Um, I had no regard for cinema, especially Hollywood films. I thought they were they were awful, and I was never interested in them. And Michael Mann rang me and said. I don't know where, I don't know, I must ask him actually where he got my number because a lot of people have asked that, but he got in touch with me and said, hi, my name's Michael Mann and I'm working on this movie called Heat and I want you to come. And I'm like, who is this man? <laughs> I mean, you know, I was so shocked and I thought, yeah. and I gave the phone to my husband and said, talk to him. Yeah. You know, he's got an American accent, it's American. He said, I'm Michael Mann, I know, that's Michael Mann. That's like, he's really famous. Miami Vice. Yeah, you know, he's a famous film director and everything. And I said, well, look, I'm certainly not interested at all in Good. doing music. Good business move. I thought, <laughs> I said, I'm certainly not interested at all in doing music for film. I wouldn't know what to do. I wouldn't have a clue. 
Um, I thank you very much, and I see it as a great compliment that you <laughs> should consider me for your film, but I am absolutely unqualified and un really don't want to do this work. And anyway, then he sort of... Then this whole sling of people started coming and saying, well, apparently you're coming, Michael's building the studio. He just completely ignored that. <laughs> and I said to my husband, like, what's going on with this guy? He's weird, you know, and I'm scared of him. I don't want to go. I'm not going. And he said, well, he's a film director, and I suppose he expects other people to do as he says, you know, kind of thing. He said, you should go. Just go. I'll come with you. And I, I was working with Peter Burke at the time, and I said, do you want to go? Like, should we go and see what happens? I said, I'll go if you go. And Michael really liked a peace sacrifice that Peter and I had written together, and we went over. He completely got the specs and everything um, from my husband, Jack, and completely rebuilt our studio. It was just like going into a dream. And I realised that, that it was something I could actually do because I knew how to be obedient. That was the only difference that I had, that I know so many people, and I'm not being humble, that are so much more brilliant than I will ever, ever be. They've got more talent in their toenail, but they can't do as they're told. <laughs> they can't. And having worked with Brendan for so many years, he did train me <laughs> to actually bite my tongue at times and know that if you don't learn to do as you're told, you're not going to have this piece done. It's no one's ever going to hear it. And you do, it alters your discipline. And I knew from that that I was able to do it. But I was extremely naive. And I remember being in a, a lobby in his office and he said, I want you to write this piece of music for Elevator. And I said, I don't write pieces of music for Elevator. You need to go to a company that sells Elevator music <laughs> and hire a piece and put it in your movie. Because I don't, and he said, what do you mean? And all the people in the room, because I had no idea how, he just fired people if they didn't do what he wanted. And um, anyway, I felt quite within my rights to say I'm not doing this elevator piece. And uh, he said, just take her downtown and put her in one of the lobbies of one of those big banking district areas downtown in this echoey room uh, and just leave her there. And I was furious. I remember being so furious and thinking, How, he can't treat me like this. I'm going home. And I just, I had no phone, no money, no nothing. You know, this was a while ago. I didn't have anything on me. And they just dropped me off in this place. And I was sitting there thinking, I'm not putting up with this. This is wrong. I am not putting up with this. This is. And I sat down, I started to cry. <laughs> I started weeping and feeling really miserable. And then I started to listen and I heard this and I realised it's an ambient sound he wants me to write. You know, he was so smart in the way that he actually taught me to create environments as well as subtextual tissue. So it was like going to university. You know, and I feel really privileged from that. And I think the reason that Brendan hugely contributed to showcasing what it was within my work that for some reason film directors were responding to, that he hugely he contributed to that. What Be about... Um, I'll have to re-watch Heat. Um, oh, it's, it's most... Isn't it noted for its use of sound, sound and foley? Because 
you're yeah. talking about drifting into an area that composers are always in conflict with the uh, sound and foley people in films. Yeah. One's supposed to be real and one's in, intrusive and, and the intrusive bit is the music. Yeah, well, I think it depends on the film. Mm. And I think Michael Mann is probably something I've learned after working on three films with him now that um, he's notorious for being revolutionary when it's come to celebrating pieces of music that aren't supposed to work with Bitcher, but they actually do. And he's unlocked a, co- a whole new approach to doing music for film that isn't based on pen and paper, which in some ways is not... It doesn't make it easier because you have to lay every single brick for them now, you know. Um, but I I believe it depends on the film, Dave. And I, I'm, with the film I'm working on at the moment that they have a lot of sound effects and sound design in the film. And it can be quite overwhelming at times when you're writing a very delicate piece because you know this is a delicate moment and they have extremely overwhelming sound design and sound effects over the top of the piece. But you'll find that if you... It's almost like if you whisper, the room goes quiet... Because they, if you continue to have faith, the director will bring those back and out. If he sees that the work is actually creating a powerful textual content to the film, that he'll start to strip back all the things that he thinks are going to keep people awake and busy and attentive. And they become less cynical. And they start to bring the, and use the sound design more elegantly. And, but it is hard to sort of sustain that time. I was talking to my engineer, James Orr, about it, who's my co-composer on this last project that we're doing. And I said to him, just have faith. Because he said, I'm not coping. I can't, you can't even hear the music in there. And we just have to hang in there and just show the director, all right, there it is with the sound design. And they go, oh. Can I just can can I hear it without sound design for a minute, and then you can start to help to build with them to build something together. But there are those times when you almost give up because you just think, I can't keep having my soul crushed, you know, with these muddy boots by these people that just don't seem to care. But in fact, they're not that jaded. They're just a lot of directors get extremely overwhelmed with all of the things that they have to make at the time, but if you're calm and patient and have a little face, you can get there in the end. That's why I was disappointed in the album with Brendan, because I really thought I was so excited about doing that album with him, because I thought we're now as I felt as strong as I believed he was in my music. That's why it saddened me. But it's not over yet, you know. Mm. It's not over. We don't know uh, yet. Director's cut. Of the album. The director's cut. <clears throat> do you do films? You do. You were in Neighbours, weren't you? I, I was in Neighbours once. <laughs> I think that's a really beautiful that's thing. Put, that, you know, Neighbours is really important. They put that on the talking point thing. I didn't know that. I saw that and I thought, oh, I didn't know Dave was in Neighbours. Mm. Who saw that scene? Did mm. anyone in the room see? <clears throat> Lisa did. She's making it up. Yes. Uh, no, I'm not. He was on mm. Neighbours. <clears throat> What did you do on Neighbours? On Neighbours, it was quite a revolutionary period. Uh, they got me in. I beat up the character Toadie. You may know him. He was at, he's recently been in a Jenny Craig uh, weight loss commercial, but he was at his largest then. I picked him up. I picked him up and shook him as if I was a giant. 
Then I dropped him and, <laughs> and made love to Susan, the uh, wife of Dr. Carl. So, and then I drove off in my open-topped sports car. I said, uh, I, the words I had to speak were so banal that I, I'm a big fan of Neighbours. I watch it every night, but it wasn't at its best then. And, uh, but I had dark glasses on and was always carrying around a newspaper <laughs> trying to read my lines. But, uh, I have great respect for actors <clears throat> in any, any field they get into. Poor bastards. So was the five minutes... Are we taking some questions now or anybody like to ask us a question? <clears throat> Fella over here. Hi. Um, just with regards to, at the start of your talk, you were um, mentioning that Melbourne had um, a particular creative um, aspect to it in terms of the music that was being made in that time. Still. Still, yeah. still a very creative place. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I was going to ask what your takes were on any differences between um, Melbourne, what, like what it was and what it is now, and whether, I suppose, the the difference in the international influence through the ease of the internet has had any effect on that or if you think that that's still something that's going. There's been some amazing characters come out of Melbourne, Barry Humphreys, Jermaine uh, uh, Greer. Um, and, um, um, something about... Uh, the music's been affected in Melbourne. Uh, like the current world has been gifted from the... Uh, the 1970s generation with community radio. It has Triple R in Melbourne and <coughs> 3PBS, <coughs> excuse me, and also uh, the, um, the uh, 3CR, great political AM, AM station. And, and it's, part of it's the simple geography. Melbourne's so flat that it, it can be heard all the way to Ballarat. In Sydney, there's so many hills. They have, and it, they have had an attempt to build, to build up community radio, their FBI, but they have to spend all their money on simple power to broadcast. And, and, uh, it, uh, it's a, and also the idea of community radio would not be possible to start now. It comes from a generation earlier who had had an idea that it would be good. And, mm. and I, I thank them for, for having that idea because, as you can see, the pressure on the ABC to... Uh, to uh, conform to Rupert Murdoch's idea of of competition, which is <clears throat> which is to let him and Andrew Bolt be the loudest voices, and and they're having a great effect on the ABC and the BBC in the UK. So, it's, c community radio has been uh, one of the biggest things in Melbourne in reflecting uh, Melbourne back to itself. Uh, I think, in a funny way, football is great in Melbourne uh, for the uh, strange language and. Uh, and the uh, the uh, the way it uh, goes through from the, the top to the bottom of society in Melbourne's been quite incredible. <clears throat> Robert Menzies used to park his Bentley uh, outside the uh, outer at Prince's Park, and um, uh, I don't know all, all of the uh, the pr prime ministers and that. You know, we'd go to the football, but in, in Sydney, it's. It's divided into the rugby league, which is uh, just a, a language of just buffoons and uh, not a very interesting game. But but it's it's uh, portrayed and uh, 
as just you know just for blue collar dumb blue collar people not smart blue collar people uh and the, and this rugby union which is like a private school world so i, don't know, I think that's had a big effect My, i don't know melbourne's just uh they had a, a excellent uh a thing at the melbourne library a couple of years ago called bohemian melbourne which is we had great uh you know, artefacts going back to the the nineteenth century of just weirdness in Melbourne. You know, the Hellfire Club and all that kinds of thing. Right. I, I I think Melbourne's. Uh, I went on a tour opening for Glen Campbell about I don't know about five six years ago, and I was just opening mm. by myself, opening for him. I love I always loved his music. You know, the songwriting of of Jimmy Webb. That you know, he had a great band and he's a fantastic guitar player. I'd sit and watch him every night in the stands, and just loved all, the whole presentation of it. We open, we you know, we, we and I'd have to go out and open the show, and we played in uh, you know town, you know, not Townsville. Oh, we think we did Townsville and uh, played in Canberra. It's just you know old farmers getting up to go for a piss every ten minutes, uh, not putting anything into the show. Uh, Played in Brisbane, it was a thousand, thousand, uh, you know, octogenarians just booing me. And it's like, get off, get off, not another one. And uh, it really made me hate old Queenslanders even more. And uh, I was told, you know, how to behave and all this. And Glenn Campbell's band were so embarrassed. And, uh, and we slowly got to Melbourne. And people knew the drama of a performance, and uh, you know the band comes out. There are people going mad. Then Glenn comes out there on their feet, and then he starts, starts. Uh, Where's the playground, Susie or Wichita Lineman? They know every note. They're on their feet. They're like this. It was, it was great. You know, it just showed this kind of engagement of the audience. It's it's a Melbourne thing. I, I don't like. Uh, exaggerate it too much but I kind of saw it from that perspective mm. um, fella over here Lisa excuse me um, when you're talking about laying another brick before I'm just interested in your process now with other with film or other people that you're writing with mm. and do mm. you do it like long distance like <laughs> I try not to. I mean, I worked with Swigny Price, a Polish composer, recently on a film, um, Lies We Tell. Well, a few weeks ago we finished it. And while I was doing this film with James, and I realised that with the work I'd done with Svignik before, that with the long-distance thing, it doesn't work. It really... You need to be in the same room and you need to be with the director. It just doesn't work. You don't get the same impulse. Um, and I, I find working... Now, in the modern concept of sound score or, or, or film music, that, yes, we do have to lay every brick, which is... Um, it doesn't leave a lot to the imagination. People don't, especially the producers, don't want things left to their imagination. They're extremely frightened that their film isn't going to sell if it doesn't sound fresh and new. So it's the same old thing of vain repetition where it's the same kind of thing but it's in a different dress. And it, a lot of it's to do with production. A lot of the music in uh, modern cinema is really production and sound design and being able to... What do you mean by laying every... 
laying every bit, putting every sound in there. So say, for instance, you've got orchestra mixed with um, electronic sounds, arps and pulses, then you have to, um, uh, what's the word, um, to, you have to write the, the string parts and automate them so that they sound like real orchestra. So you've got to put those parts down and you've got to orchestrate them with woodwinds, etc., cetera, um, and then combine those and produce those so that they work with ambient sounds. And when you work with ambient sounds, you have to create the ambient sounds from existing libraries, but you can't just put generic sounds on there. You've got to sculpture them and make them fresh and new. Um, and it's also to do with production, like a brightness of sound, of using modern sounding reverbs, understanding some of the reverbs now are changing a lot because they're designed for dance music. They don't work with organic instruments. You can have problems when you're mastering. You must know all of these things because the last thing you can get a reputation for is once things get to the dubbing stage that you've got sound problems. There's all sorts of little snares and traps that you need to know your work, don't overreach, um, you know, and, and experiment in different spaces. Take your work to different rooms and check it out. Check the reverbs out without the music. You know, even if it's in your car, just do a pass, do a, record a pass of the reverb and you'll start to see some of the artefacts, whether they're clashing or whether they're creating a kind of like a high sibilance that might translate bad, badly into the, into the cinema. We're just at a point where we're beta testing just about everything new that's coming out, you know, especially with new softwares, um, etc. And when I say lay every brick, they want to hear their score finished in your studio. You know, you don't have the opportunity anymore to, to go, well, don't worry, it's going to be great when we get real instruments or once it's been to orchestra. No, they want to hear it. You know, how is it going to sound with orchestra? So you've got to use samples and you've got to have good samples and they're expensive. Well, we've always worked with a computer. I mean, Brendan and I first started out with the Mirage and the Commodore 64. You know, so it's, I mean, before that, I mean, Brendan was using electric guitars, but not for very long. You know, once we got to London and the first computers were coming out, I mean, Space Invaders had already come out before we left. So we were right on the brink of those, of that technology, and we were completely liberated by um, having a mirage you know, that would, to us sounded like a wonderful orchestra. I mean, today it has a certain charm. Um, <laughs> But you know, do you understand what I mean? So, but now, because the quality of like people like Hans Zimmer or Media Ventures are delivering such high-end, expensive-sounding stuff, that in order for you to continue in that level of work, you have to compete with that. It's just all too easy for them to come along and say, "But listen to the production, compare it with this." And then you're out, you're fired. There are many levels of poetry. I mean, poetry can come from, you know, the pathway of the heart from in many different forms and reactions, responses to those things that you want to be absolute, your connection is absolute with. And I wouldn't see that doing reverbs or production or working moulding sounds is any less poetic than singing. I completely understand, which is why it's been such an interesting choice, because Dave's words are so profound and so beautiful and so touching. And I thought it was an interesting combination that they would get us, when my words are completely abstract, I mean, I don't really sing words, and occasionally I do. But the reason why I think my work has become, has grown and evolved is because of that abstract personification of it just being very simple sounds.
from the voice, where your poetry is something that it's not deeper, and my work isn't less, you know, isn't isn't deeper than than writing poetry. It's still something that you connect with, that you feel you can let go. And often, it's like something you've written that you don't really see your hand move. It's such a stream of of light and liquid um, consciousness that comes from you when you're a poet. You're a poet, and it's in many different responses. Uh, you know, uh, resonant in many different shapes and forms and sounds. It is, and I think that's why it's become um, uh, effective in working with cinema, and I think that's why other people saw it. And I say that to you because it's really important. I have a friend, Astrid, that was offered an opportunity to get some work, and she's extremely broke at the moment. I really wanted her to get this job, but she didn't tell me what to do. She didn't tell me that she, what she needed to do. She thought, I'll just give it a go and I won't bother Lisa, which I wish she'd have come to me because they said to her, we want you, can you sing Celtic? And, I mean, what does that mean for a start? But she said, especially in cinema, because it's such a hybrid of anything, there's nothing really, you know, um, geographic going on. In fact, they want the opposite all the time. So the thing is that she went and learnt this amazing uh, Celtic piece from uh, the Shetland Islands, and um, she sang it, and... She sent it to them, and it was very lyrical and complex, and it's never going to work in cinema. You know, and what I'm trying to say to people, especially if you're using your voice as one of your instruments or a bow in your instrument, keep it really simple. Don't try and make... Don't get trapped in the mouth, you know, in the prison of the tongue or the mind. Just groan or moan or hum what's in your heart, and keep it really simple. And you'd be surprised at the emotional power that you can unlock subtextually within film if you keep it very simple. And don't, you don't need to be organic. Play with your reverbs. And I think it is, it was, it's interesting listening to Dave talking about the work earlier, how Ron Rood experimented with reverbs, and that's definitely become something that's been my saving grace in cinema, is that I can, I use, I'm absolutely fearless when it comes to using effects on the voice, because the more abstract and less present and more, it the, is the more atmospheric that it becomes. And if you can step back from the character and shine light subtextually on what it is that the director wants to show through the most simple voice, you can fill up the, 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 the ground. Michael Mann taught me something really interesting about doing film for, for, for cinema. He said there's a landscape. You go deep, you go middle and you go high. It's really simple. No one wants to do it. They want to make something musically great, okay? But when you're working with visuals on a screen, they are, they are the performers. They're the, they are actually musical instruments. And they make sound and they're emotional and they're, poet, they're poetic. Them as a part of the group that you're contributing to in this opera, which is this film... You know, don't take everything, because sometimes it might be the most simple thing that can unlock something really deep. You know, he comes to the studio at home once we've got some work. Once I, a lot of time with a director is spent talking, finding out what they feel, finding out what um, their vision is, 
who they are as people, what politics, whether they're religious or spiritual or, you know, finding out about them, finding everything out about them, finding the things out that, you know, that they're going, that it is that this very personal experience of theirs because most of them aren't doing it just because it's a business on money. The producers, of course, are taking much more of a material risk, but the director has a vision. On this one, I'm collab I've worked with an engineer for 11 years, and this is the first film we're writing together. Yes, we work in exactly the same studio. Everything we write, we record into the computer. Everything we write, straight into the computer like a recording machine. Um, if we can't play the instrument, we'll tune it, chop it up, put it in time. I mean, we just do everything. Uh, Lisa, just wanted to hear about the process of you selecting movies on which you want to work. Do you scrutinize the scripts? Uh, or do you have much insight into what the movie will be about before you commit to the of, soundtrack? Of course. I mean, you have to be extremely careful because you're going to commit yourself body and soul. Wouldn't you agree, Dave? I mean, you can't just go along and, you know, sell arms to you know, whomever, we, you know, do you know what I mean? And I have very strict rules about I don't like cruelty to animals or children and um, unnecessarily kind of like that aren't documentations of something very real because, of course, I did Tears of Gaza, which is just, just appalling. It's really dark, and but it's true and it needed to be done. And I knew that I didn't have to worry about the Hollywood scene because I don't care about it. But there was a lot of composers that wouldn't touch that film because it would have offended the Jewish establishment but it didn't worry me because I thought, well, this is a message. The woman's motive, in answer to your question, was she wants the hatred to stop. It wasn't because she wanted to take sides or anything. She just wants to show the world that this hatred must stop. Well, who can come up with some solutions to solve this terrible problem? All right. Dave? I think, did you have a question before of gentlemen in the green? We're almost at time as well, mm. so. Fantastic. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> Lisa, I, uh, I didn't know your music before I went overseas in the late 90s and I spent quite a few years over in Europe. And I only learned of your music through colleagues in Europe and I was mm. stunned at how well you were known in Europe and they were stunned mm. that I didn't know your music. Um, are you as well recognised now in Australia as you should be, or...? I was recognised your... in Moe once, <laughs> and I was absolutely astonished. But in answer to this man's question as well, I think in some way your question was linked, like, do you think through the internet or whatever that maybe that music will evolve or that it will have a, a way of how we did in a van through Europe when we were kids mm. or whatever? Is there a way to solve this crisis and how can people find out about the work, etc.? That's something that we have to solve. I, I, it's de definitely work, word of mouth. It's a long shelf life thing, as it was with Dead Can Dance, probably very similar to mm -hmm. Dave's work, that it doesn't come in with a smash. It's something that you sort of... It's a little treasure that you have to, you've got to dig for and you've got to find, and one thing leads to another. And if we do use this media that we have accessible to us or whatever, I suppose it would be really sensible, like a really good book, that it shares your favourite painters or it shares your favourite artists or poets and that, you know, that we make an effort not just to talk about you know, what we were wearing that day or what we had to eat or a photograph of our dinner plate, but, you know, that we actually got a little deeper and, and broader 
with our messages <coughs> that we share through multimedia, because that's how things have grown with us. It's grown very, very slowly. Um, Dave, uh, can I ask you, uh, how do you approach going into recording studio differently from how you go to perform and live? Mm -hmm. um, is there a different mindset or <coughs> do you just go into the studio and just imagine that you're performing? Uh, probably a degree of uh, <clears throat> internal trauma that, that everybody has in their life when they uh, um, look in the mirror and think, wow, I'm a person. Mm. <laughs> I'm trapped in here kind of thing. <laughs> uh, when you have a, a persona that's kind of exterior, I guess, you have to deal with that as well. Um, I, I, I don't know. I, I'll just, I just like a goofy kind of um, uh, sensation. Um, yeah, I, I have some kind of views on what what life is and I, I, I enjoy the writings of a, a, a strange Welshman called John Cowper Powis and I'm, I, I, I'll be reading his books until I die and I'm on page like 670 of his 1,200-page epic Glastonbury romance at the moment. So I'm generally just thinking about, um, uh, you know, uh, silly things... Uh, and heavy things, you know, a lot of the time, and um, <clears throat> writing songs and that. I, I, I'm probably, I've probably got some <clears throat> disease, like I don't know, Asperger's or something, because I often have bits of chords or bits of music <clears throat> that are attempts to have a single note going through about four chords, just to because I can't let go of that stupid idea, and. Um, you know things like that, uh, but but this year I've been um, <clears throat> putting out a song every month on iTunes, just for the hell of it. I, I don't want to be worried about manufacturing anything physical, just at the moment. So every 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 month I'm putting out a song, <clears throat> and I and I think about it, and and I'm <clears throat> in the past I've always. Uh, <clears throat> you know, worried about having a narrative story or do I do this or do that? Does it, you know, uh, it has got to be a certain amount of time or something. So I'm, I'm trying to do three-minute songs just because I've never paid attention to that. And, um, and, and, I just, and, I, and I just like to use language that's very vernacular. I always have. And um, so I put out a song every month and that's what I do. I do it in my studio at home and uh, I've been sort of playing everything myself or with my partner Claire Moore. So uh, I've put out a song called I'm a Good Hater to start off the year with because someone said it to me at Christmas. They looked at me and said, you're a good hater, Dave. And I thought, yeah, I am a good hater. And So I like things that come out of some reality. Or, and like I said, I'm often wondering about who I am, looking in the mirror like everybody. And then uh, if somebody else tells you something about yourself... That seemed to me to be something real. So somebody said, "I'm a good hater. I'm a good hater," and then I then I then I did a really bad. Uh, I was thinking about doing a shit gig, and then I listened to a Willie Nelson song called "I Never Came Into This Bar," and I ain't leaving. So uh, I, I I did this song, and I just uh, cooked up a rhythm track, and uh, I put so much compression on the drums that the uh, 
the cymbals were whooshing. They were like, they have this sound. And so I said to Claire, get your pearls and uh, just drape them onto the cymbal, the crash cymbal, and lift them off. Don't hit it. Just and, and we recorded that for the whole song and turned it up really loud. And it's got this fuzz bass. And, and I sing a song called, it's a heroic song about doing a bad gig, dying at a gig. And it's, but you're, as you're going down, you're saying to the gig and the world that this is the deadest place that I've ever died in. And uh, <laughs> so I like to do things with sensation. And uh, it's not to say that they're not serious, because I like, I like people who have, a, I like music and people who have a, a, a sense for the very bottom. And and the void and 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 death and all that stuff, and and they don't have to be. If they're just being like that all the time, it, it's it's tiresome because you have to bust through to another dimension and, and a way way of being. So uh, then I did. Uh, I was thinking about um, to being to be popular, which is a, a concern of musicians. So. Uh, I did a song called "I've Been Trendy," and then I then I was thinking because uh, I like to have uh, you know I, I don't drink but I like to have a bit of marijuana every now and again, and I was I was thinking of a Charlie Parker song called "Drifting on a Reed." Charlie Parker, you know who he is, a bebop sax player, and then I thought cause I, I, I like stupid plays on words, and I thought "Drifting Drifting Donna Reed." Donna Reed is a, a f- actress in It's a Wonderful Life and lots of noir movies. So uh, I thought drifting Donna Reed and it made me laugh. And then and then I sang a song about about people coming up to you saying, excusing themselves and not knowing something by saying it's before my time. And you think, wow, was Leonardo da Vinci before your time? You've, you don't know about that, Michelangelo, Jesus. Do you know? Heard of him? And the, but anyway, so the song is I'm, goes, "I'm before your time. Don't worry." And and I'm just drifting, Donna Reed. What? And I say, "What does that even mean?" I'm thinking about popular culture and and the charge that not uh, that uh, personas and 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 you know stars or whatever have and ways to uh, communicate with people so i did that one and i've just put out one uh called uh, it's called uh, are you out of your mind get back in because uh because <laughs> i was thinking everybody's on the social media and their minds are being sucked out into into mm. uh directly uh, directly feeding their minds into this mm. cloud and uh and and what you betray about yourself often every day is is, is quite quite serious and uh, so uh, it's just songs just says you talk too much you know so kind of thing and uh, yeah, so I'm working on next month's tune at the moment I'm I'm enjoying uh, just concentrating on something a little bit at a time and making a little thing and I've never had that experience much uh, previously in the studios I've often thought of. Uh, of a collection of songs along a theme and even the instrumentation, but I've, I've freed myself up from it and I've, <clears throat> I'm working with an online dis- distributor. <clears throat> it's quite confusing because they talk about retail outlets and you're thinking, what are you talking about? He's talking about iTunes and uh, Bandcamp and stuff and retail opportunities. He's a very nice guy and he's dedicated to... Uh, he really likes Australian music and 
you know, so I think I, I, I was wanting to give this digital world a try because, uh, you know, I, I do love vinyl albums. I have thousands of them, but I'm not interested in making them myself. I, th I think it's a bit silly in 2016 to be doing that, you know, so... So that's my approach, you know. I think the tech technology is is amazing, and uh, you can just record a song and then put it out, you know, in a, as quick as as quick as it allows. So, but but as as far as what do I feel or whatever, you know, I'm with Robert Mitchum, who. Uh, <laughs> when asked the same question, was that what you asked? What am I feeling, or how do I approach it? Yes. <laughs> <clears throat> well, Robert Mitchum said when asked, how do you feel? He goes, who gives a fuck what I was feeling, you know, kind of thing. But, uh, um, yeah, I approach it uh, in, a, in a reckless and, uh, I don't know, silly way. But that's been my game plan, I guess. And it's too late. Too late now. <laughs> Thank you for the question. <laughs> Thank you very much, Dave, and thank you very much, Lisa. Can we please get a round of applause for Dave and Lisa? Thanks for coming along. Thanks, Lisa. So um, we'll wrap it up there. Thanks again to the to Melbourne Recital Centre, um, and thank you all for coming along. Uh, keep your eyes uh, peeled for the next uh, event that APRA MCOS have and also that the Recital Centre have. Have a good night.